2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Common Sense. I'm Dr. Ben Carson. We have some spectacular guests today. But, you know, every life is precious and must be protected. Across the country, there's been a lot of arguments about when does life actually begin. But the science is clear. It begins at conception. You know, some years ago, uh, we were at a banquet, and a young a beautiful young woman came up to my wife, very statuesque, well-spoken. And she said, are you Dr. Ben Carson's wife? And my wife said, yes. And she said, your husband operated on me and my twin sister while we were still in our mother's womb. And I just want to thank you. And that's why you'll never get me to believe that what's in a woman's uterus is a meaningless bunch of cells. On this edition of Common Sense, we're going to touch on the realities of abortion and why we should have laws to protect the unborn. Now, we're at a pivotal moment in this country. This summer, the Supreme Court is likely to be ruling on the Dobbs case, a case that could potentially overturn Roe v. Wade. For some people, they jump for joy. For some people, they cry for sorrow. But today, we're gonna to talk to Dr. Kathy Altman, a retired board-certified OBGYN. And uh, she was a former abortionist, but uh, her experiences in performing abortions led her to become a pro-life advocate. And we're gonna hear a little bit about how all that happened. But we're also going to be talking to Dr. Tara Sanders Lee, a trained scientist on human development. She can give us some real insight in terms of what's going on in the room and when pain is felt. And uh, I think we're going to learn a lot today. So uh, Dr. Altman and Dr. Lee, thank you both very much for being here today and for the tremendous contributions that you've made to our society and will continue to make. And uh, I should mention that both of you are associated with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is a nonprofit institute committed to bringing the power of science and medicine and research to bear on life-related policies uh, and debates that affect all of us. So I just want to start by uh, asking uh, Dr. Altman, to just share your story about being a former abortionist and now moving to the other side
3: Yes, I came from the dark side. Um, <laughs> I um, let me start with the fact that I actually had an abortion and I think that colored my opinions later. I um, um, got pregnant by my future husband right before I was supposed to enter medical school and decided to have an abortion because I was afraid I wouldn't be able to be a doctor. I was afraid that we'd end up with a divorce if we had to get married. And I was afraid of what people would think of me. I found out later that none of those things were valid. When I did get to medical school, I met all these women who had had their children first and then went to medical school. We ended up with the divorce anyway, and I realized that my family and the people that mattered would have supported me, so none of those reasons were valid when I got to um when I got to my residency program, I believed that abortion was a woman's right, that um no one should have to bear a child that they didn't want that we shouldn't bring unwanted children into the world where they might be abused or neglected. So all the arguments, all the typical arguments, um, I learned to do uh, first trimester DNC with suction abortions. And then I actually went outside the program and did a preceptorship with a local abortionist who did dismemberment abortions. And I learned how to do those. Uh, feeling like I was really doing something, uh, for women. And at that time, I didn't see the human fetuses any different than a chick embryo, you know, the ones that we detected in college. <clears throat> so I, um, I, once I got my license, I started moonlighting at an abortion clinic and, um, felt really good about what I was doing. I, I was, um, excellent at what I did. It's funny though, I tried so hard uh, to make this actually painful procedure as painless as possible for my patients, but I didn't even consider what the baby was feeling. Um, I continued to do abortions even when I was pregnant all the way up to term, but when I went back afterwards my first trip back to the clinic um, I ran into several patients that changed my mind, and I could no longer uh, kill babies just because they weren't wanted.
2: Well, could be, yeah. before before you go on, could you just describe for us an abortion in the first trimester and the, and in the second trimester?
3: Okay. So in the first trimester... Normally, um, we would take a suction cannula and insert it into the uterus and suction out everything that's in there. We have to dilate the cervix first, of course. And and the, the baby is basically sort of torn apart as they go through the hole because the hole is smaller than they are. Um, and then afterwards, you have to count the baby parts. With the dismemberment abortion, it's a lot more involved. Um, depending on how far along the baby is, um, you have to di- you may have to dilate over one or two days using something like laminaria to, to slowly dilate the cervix. Then we insert a, um, a cannula again, plastic cannula to drain the fluid and bring the baby down closer to the opening of the womb, the cervix. We then meet in with a special heavy clamp and grab anything we can, usually an arm or a leg, and by twisting and pulling you can dis detach it and pull it out. And so you keep doing that until um you can't get anything else and so you've got any arms and legs. Then you have to open the clamp wider um so you can you try to get the head before you get the the body because the head if you get if you wait and do the head last, kind of like a little marble in there, it's hard to find, so and hard to grasp, so try to grasp the head and crush the head, and you know when that happens because you see the white brains leak out then um you pull that out and then you try to grab the thorax or the the chest and crush that. And then that usually comes out with the pelvis. Then you have to try and grasp the to pull that out. And then most people go back with the suction cannula and try to suction any other little bits and blood. Some people go back and check with a metal curette just to feel that everything feels like it's out. And then you count the body parts, make sure the patient isn't bleeding too much. You may have to give her something to stop bleeding. And, um, and then that's the end of the procedure.
2: What, what, what happens if something is left behind?
3: If you leave any tissue behind, then they're likely to get an infection and keep bleeding. That's mm. a big problem. And that was one of the things, you know, is that when we take the ER call, that was one of the things that would happen is I would see patients come in after an abortion with products of conception, they call it left, and infected.
2: And then you'd have to do a DNC? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. Okay. So, you know, the, uh, reason, the reason not many doctors keep doing abortions is we can't, we can't tell ourselves it's a blob of tissue because we've been pulling off arms and legs and we got to count all the body parts.
2: True enough. So, so, continue with your story about your migration.
3: Okay. So <laughs> the sad thing is that I still believed in abortion, even though I couldn't personally do them anymore, I still believed in abortion, and I still referred. But as I you know progressed in my practice, I would see these young girls with unplanned pregnancies um, do really well after they kept their babies. And then I would see other women coming in with psychological problems and physical problems because of abortions. I also um, had some um, little kids in my Sunday school class whose parents had actually contemplated abortion because they were unwed mothers. But they had their babies, and I kept thinking, oh, my gosh, if they would made the decision I made, these precious little children wouldn't be here. And um so that was another thing. Um and none of that jives with the feminist rhetoric that I had embraced. The thing that um well and then I be- I became a Christian but still believed in abortion, which is sort of hard to understand. But God kept working on me and my friends accepted me even though I believed the way I did. Finally one one man came to me and he said, Kathy, I know that you feel strongly about abortion, but would you read this article? And it was an article that compared abortion to the Holocaust. And my father had been present when the first concentration camp was liberated. And so I grew up with those stories and pictures. Never could understand how the German doctors could do what they did, especially when I became a physician. But as I looked back at what I was doing, I suddenly understood because just as I didn't consider the fetus as a human being, they didn't consider their victims as human beings. And when you categorize someone as non-human, you can rationalize anything. And that was when I suddenly saw myself as a mass murderer. And Ted Bundy was in the news at the time, and I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, I've killed a lot more people than Ted Bundy.
2: Wow. That is kind of a heart-wrenching story. But, you know, I, I can remember my own transition because I was pro-choice. Uh, I felt that I was an enlightened person. And even though I didn't personally believe in abortion, I said, what right do I have to say to someone else what you should do with your body? So I was in that camp until one day I was reading about and thinking about slavery in America and uh, how the masters felt that they could do anything they wanted because they felt they owned these individuals. could. Beat, murder, rape, whatever you wanted to do to them. And I was thinking how horrible that was. And then I was thinking about the abolitionists. And I said, what if the abolitionists had said, "Well, I don't believe in slavery myself, but you know, if you want to do it, that's fine." Um, where would we be? So, you know, the fact of the matter is, maybe there is a real responsibility uh, to do something. You know, the book of of Proverbs, 24th chapter, 10 through 12, it says, you know, those who are being drawn unto death, you have a responsibility to speak up for them. Does not God know whether you said something or just stood in a corner? And uh, that was the thing that really had a a big impact on me and and changed me and made me much more proactive in the pro-life movement. We have to take a a very quick break, but uh, we're going to be right back and hear more about this. Uh, I want to hear a little bit maybe about your faith, and then we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Tara Sander Lee uh, about some of the things that are actually going on and things that we have learned since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was put in place about what is actually happening And that, Mother Judith, will be right back.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe, now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall.
2: And we are back with our two exciting guests, Dr. Kathy Altman and, and Dr. Tara Sander Lee. We're talking about abortion. We're talking about life. We're talking about the development of a human being and uh, something we should all be very interested in. You know, our founding document talks about certain unalienable rights given to us by our creator. First on that list, life. So very important. So uh, Dr. Altman, what role did your faith play? You, you say there seemed to be some dissonance between, you know, being a Christian and tearing babies apart.
3: You know, I think God has to get a hold of you first and bring you to Jesus, and then he consumes you. And that's what happened with me. and Thankfully, my Christian friends accepted me, even though I believed the way I did. Had they not, then they wouldn't have had a chance to influence me. But I, I will say that after abortion and after you've been committing abortions, it really takes a lot of prayer and healing to be able to get past that. And that was the case for me. But Absolutely. thankfully, you know, I did have people that could help me with that.
2: I'll praise the Lord for that and uh dr. Lee um, you have a very fascinating uh, you've had a very fascinating career, and uh, you probably know as much as anybody about what's going on in that uterus. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what things have changed to give us more insight and what actually is going on during the development? you know from the time the the female and the male gamut get together and form a zygote. What 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 the heck is going on in there?
4: <laughs> <laughs> thank you, first of all, for this opportunity. Um, it's just it's such an honor to be here. And thank you, Dr. Altman, for sharing your um, your very personal story. Um, you know, science has been so pivotal in changing the hearts and minds about so many about the truth of the unborn child. So, you know, if we just look back at the time of Roe, just with the scientific advancements, we can see some of the major scientific advancements in ultrasound, fetal surgery, diagnostics, fetal pain and suffering and consciousness. And the fact that they can feel pain potentially as early as 12 weeks gestation. And then, you know, advancements that allow us to now treat extremely premature infants and that the age of viability is becoming younger and younger as early as 21 weeks gestation—that's just 19 weeks after fertilization. But I think you know one of the first advancements that really happened since Roe that ushered in all of these other advancements was ultrasound. I mean, if we look at ultrasound before Roe, um, it was really relatively new field, and so the equipment was big, it was bulky, it actually didn't even really become available in the United States. until about the mid to late 70s but even then before Roe what what the only thing that you could see inside the room with inside the womb was basically um, these uh, the baby is in the form of grainy black and white dots you could barely pick out even the head or the major organs inside the womb but then with
2: just like the cat scans remember remember the first early cat scans it was more like a Rorschach test. And yeah. everybody was so excited to go down and look at them. And exactly. what a change that occurred. That. It's yeah.
4: And I just, I'm just going to show this, but this is just an example right here. This is what the baby looked like in the early forms of ultrasound. And then now after row, what we see is just incredible clarity, 3D, 4D ultrasound. Um, you know, not, not only can we now distinguish all the... You know, bodily organs that are developing inside the womb. Um, You know, by six weeks, we can see the heart beating. And not only is it beating, but it's beating rhythmically at 100 beats per minute. We can see um, the fingers and the toes and the legs and the arms that are fully formed by 10 weeks gestation. That's just eight weeks post fertilization, and in fact, over 90% of the of the body structures in the in the embryo at that stage are fully developed. I mean, it's just it's remarkable, and all because of ultrasound allowing us to then really have that visualization, that window into the womb. And um, that was just, that was, that revolutionized um, medicine. It really did. And, you know, then by 15 weeks gestation, we can see the behaviors of a child. We can see that a child is sucking his or her thumb and already has a preference for whether they're going to be left-handed or right-handed. We can see how the child responds to touch and to taste. And so with all of these advancements in ultrasound and the ability to see the, the baby developing inside the womb... And then with it, as you know, Dr. Carson, with advancements in surgical technology and anesthesia and a better understanding of fetal pain, we were then able to treat these babies inside the womb as separate patients to relieve their suffering and pain with anesthesia. And these this amazing field of of in utero surgery is now saving babies from life-threatening conditions such as, you know, spina bifida or twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome as early sometimes as 15 weeks gestation. So it's just remarkable. And and as I mentioned earlier, the age of viability is just becoming younger and younger. I mean, at the time of Roe, you know, we're maybe Babies that were born extremely premature were um, surviving about 24 to 28 weeks. But now we see these babies surviving even younger. I mean, the there was actually a Guinness world record that was broken by a boy named Curtis last year in November, where he was born 132 days early. And he was the world's most premature infant to live to his first birthday. And he's now, I think he's close to two years old now. And so it's just, it's remarkable how technology and science have advanced so much since Roe, that we have a much better understanding, visualization of the of the humanity of the unborn child in the womb, and we can treat these babies, and they are treated just like a patient outside the womb. They're treated like any other individual, and unfortunately, so many ignore that science. And then, um, as Dr. Altman so um, so carefully explained, that then that's just they they don't accept the the humanity of the unborn child in order to. To continue to condone the behavior, you know, to condone the abortions. So,
2: yeah, I was I was at a, a conference in South Africa, and uh, talking to one of the speakers was the head of the ACLU, and he was talking about how they speak for those who can't speak for themselves. And I told him about a woman who came to me with thirty three weeks pregnancy, and she was on her way to Kansas to get an abortion because that was the only place she could get it. A baby would be viable outside of the womb without life support and uh i managed to convince her not to get the abortion baby had a neurological problem it was amenable to surgery i was able to operate she loves that baby she's so glad she didn't kill it but i said would you speak for that baby that's a baby that can't speak for itself perfectly viable and he hemmed and hawed and he weaseled but he never would answer the question so later on that evening Uh, He had the misfortune of sitting next to me at dinner. And uh, I continued the conversation and I said, well, you know, sometimes we operate on babies that are 28, 27, 26, 25 weeks gestation. And, uh, you know, they're much less developed than this baby that I was talking to you about, who happens to be in the safest place in the universe that it can be in. I said, will you speak for those babies? He said, oh yeah, no problem whatsoever. I said, but 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 for the other one was in the mother's womb, you won't speak to that one? And he says, Well, I realize that doesn't make any sense. But I believe the woman has a right to kill the baby until the second it is born. And I said, Would you say that in public? And he said, No. But today they will say it in public. That's how far this thing has degenerated. And people totally ignoring even the science, as it has become apparent uh, from the things that you've just said. Uh, It's almost like a religion. Uh, We have the right to kill these babies, and we will use whatever rationalization we need to use in order to do that, Uh, including making the mother and the baby enemies of each other, when in fact, it is the closest bond that is possible on this earth outside of God,
4: yeah, no, it's absolutely true. and I you know, if you look at um they have a lot of historical counts about ultrasound and how women, for the first time when ultrasound first became available, that they could actually see their unborn child and in this interview, one of the physicians said that he can remember many of the women laughing, rejoicing, or squealing with delight upon seeing their child for the first time on the screen, yeah. because before then, they didn't have that ability. And so I think, um, as you mentioned, that's why it's, it's so important that We just continue to speak the truth and that it is really important for women to be able to see by ultrasound that unborn child, because it really, it does chase hearts and minds once they see that beating heart.
2: Yes. Well, Dr. Altman, a question for you. Uh, When you were doing abortions, uh, was there a special effort made to make sure that the women did not see the baby on ultrasound?
3: ultrasound then I'm (laughs) old (laughs) Um, yeah we didn't we didn't have it really available it was you know it was early and certainly we would not have wanted them to see it
2: yeah and and is it true uh, Dr. Lee that uh, the fetus actually of a girl and a boy uh, sometimes move differently in the womb
4: Yes, that's absolutely true. So actually, um, the girls and the boys can actually move differently inside the womb. And I think it's actually by about 13 weeks. And it's really interesting that the girls actually move their mouths more than the boys (laughs) inside the womb. So there's so many fascinating facts just about um, even just how fingerprints are formed. I mean, fingerprints, for these babies, start forming as early as ten weeks uh, post-fertilization, and they're going to be fully established by seventeen weeks. And so, when you think about that, just the humanity—like, not only do these babies have arms and legs, fingers and toes and beating hearts but they have fingerprints they have eyebrows they have eyelashes and it just and this doesn't miraculously happen at the time of birth (laughs) you know this is all happening inside the womb and um they really are just smaller versions um of us it's just it's remarkable
2: and they have their own unique uh set of genetic markers Uh, you know some people say well it's actually part of the mother, but it's not part of the mother. Maybe it has 23 of her chromosomes, but also has 23 of the father's chromosomes, and they combine at 46 unique individuals that no one else is the same in the world.
4: That's exactly, and right. that's something and even that twins- I think
2: people need to understand.
4: Yeah. And even twins, even twins that are identical, there's still minor differences. So every human being that is conceived is, is unique. And, and yeah. DNA, the blueprint of life is one of the reasons for that.
2: Well, speaking of, of DNA, you know, there's been a lot of DNA testing done these days to determine if maybe a baby has some defect that would justify abortion. Can you comment on how that's being used, and are we making any positive progress there, or are we just using it to destroy what are frequently normal babies?
4: Yeah. So um, it it is important to have this conversation because with advancements in science also came advancements in diagnosis, and um, we know that one of the earlier ways to diagnose, um, you know, these birth defects inside the womb, these genetic causes of disease were through amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling, which actually posed a risk of miscarriage um, to the mother. So with advancements in science, then there became this um, technique called non-invasive prenatal testing or, or screening. And that allowed women to get screened simply by just giving a sample of their blood so that they could uh, look for, um, the fetal DNA that was circulating through the mother's blood without any harm to the mother or for, to the child. And so the idea of this screening was, well, let's just try to rule out all of the, um, all of the babies that are not at risk. And then for those that we think we, that they're at risk, then let's go in and do the more invasive diagnostic screening to confirm it. But unfortunately, this has become so widespread that this screening is offered to virtually every woman, no matter if she's low risk or high risk. And there is often um, a lot of times these tests are wrong and women do not go and have the diagnostic confirmation before making a decision such as to abort or not. We know, for example, in the Down syndrome population, that um, if you have these tests, even though some of these companies like Natera claim that they are like 95% sensitive, you know, and they can detect um, risk, we know that it's even not as good as that because, because that's the data that that's 95% effective when you look at women that are at high risk. If you look at studies that look at women that are, te- are screened that are at low risk, it actually, there's a 50% risk that the chance that the test is going to be wrong. So you're actually, you're better off flipping a coin <laughs> because if you get a positive result, you're there's only a 50% chance that it's actually right. And we know that once a baby is is screened and has a positive result, through this non-invasive prenatal screening, there's a 67% chance that that baby's going to be aborted. And so this is becoming a modern day form of eugenics, unfortunately. And um, it's a really big problem. And um, the public needs to be aware, women, families need to be aware that these tests are not as accurate as they are sometimes um, offered. And, um, it's and we need and a lot of you know there's about a dozen states that have actually stood up and said and they've passed laws saying that you you cannot they're banning abortion based on discrimination. You cannot once you know that there's a risk of a disorder such as down syndrome, you cannot abort that baby. You cannot abort a baby because of race, because of sex. And so states are starting to stand up um and say how, you know, to show how wrong this is.
2: right wouldn't it be so much easier if people just accepted the blessing of a pregnancy and did everything they could to make sure that it turns out okay? Yeah, <laughs> it I would know. be so much easier.
4: Yeah. Well, and there's so um, many people that would open up their homes too to these babies. So yes, yeah. We're
2: going to have to take another quick break, but uh, when we come back with Dr. Altman and Dr. Lee, we want to talk a little bit about what can we do for those. Young women who have been diagnosed with a pregnancy, a surprise, not something that they planned for, frequently getting pressure from their families to abort the baby. Uh, How do we deal with them? What positive thing can we do for them? So we'll be right back.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: And welcome back, everybody. Uh, This is Common Sense. We have fantastic guests, Dr. Uh, Kathy Altman and Dr. Tara Sander Lee. We're talking about abortion, but we're also talking about the gift of birth, the gift of life and how to enhance that. And uh, ladies, I want to ask you this question. Be interested in both of your opinions. You know, there are, unfortunately, a lot of women who end up with unplanned pregnancies. And so often the emphasis is on the mother, and there's very little emphasis on the child. And what things can we do? What things can we tell that mother? And... uh Just an interesting aside—I'll just throw this in as an aside—for those people who think killing a baby is okay, have you noticed that in the court system, in the legal system, if you kill a pregnant woman, you get two counts of murder? So how is it that that can happen and abortion can be done? It's a very interesting question but let's get back to how do we help those mothers in that unplanned situation frequently who are being pressured?
3: I think the pregnancy centers um, have done a wonderful job of um, making available all sorts of resources to young women. And Charlotte Lozier and Susan B. Anthony right now, uh, they have something called Her Plan where they're looking at everything that's available for. Pregnant women and new mothers, and categorizing it all, and then looking to see where the holes in that safety net, so that um, so that there will be things available for women. But um, you know, just being there with her, supporting her during the pregnancy, helping her financially, helping her with education, all of these things can be available. And our country has really taken the easy way out and decided, okay, if a woman doesn't have enough money, she could get an abortion, and then the state doesn't have to do anything. But really, the state, the government, does need to be um, providing resources so that women don't have to uh, kill their babies. And I, I, I heard this sad story about a minority woman who said she had five abortions and she didn't want any of them. But she was told, you're too poor, you need to have an abortion. And, and I think the, the minority um, women are victimized by this and told, you can't make it. You can't have your dreams unless you abort."
2: Yeah, and of course, uh, the founder of Planned Parenthood uh, believed in eugenics and uh, located most of the clinics in minority neighborhoods to accomplish her goals. And she was a tremendous hero in Nazi Germany. Go figure.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, as Dr. Altman mentioned, I mean, there's over 2,700 pregnancy care centers throughout the United States. And they are, they are ready to help women and meet them where they are to provide, provide material needs. And I think the other thing that women need to be aware of that abortion is not safe. Like it's so often touted as being. I mean, Dr. Altman, Dr. Altman walked through the serious risks, you know, of hemorrhage, life-threatening complications of infection, and especially with the abortion industry pushing chemical abortions, so that women are now having these abortions at home, all alone, away from, you know, medical supervision, emergency rooms. I mean, we know from Charlotte Lozier's studies that. There is a serious risk of um, of having a chemical abortion at home. It puts them at a higher risk of going to the emergency room and we know from other studies in other countries that have a much better record keeping than the United States when it comes to maternal mortality that there is actually a four times higher risk um, of complications with chemical abortion compared to surgical abortion so I think it's it's really important for women to realize that in abortion there are always two victims it's the child that's killed. And the mother, um, she herself is putting herself at risk physically, but then emotionally, because we know that there are there are serious um, mental health uh, um, issues that are associated with abortion, and a lot of times people just choose to ignore those studies, but they're very real.
2: Absolutely, the the depression and suicide associated with that is something that needs to be reckoned with, and people don't like to talk about it, but. Uh, it's very hard after you've had that human life inside of you uh, to destroy it and not feel anything and uh, but uh, i want to thank both of you uh, tremendously for this contribution that you've made this has been extraordinarily enlightening and uh, i hope the audience is going to get a lot of this we'll be right back in one moment with a common sense prescription for you.
0: Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all wheel drive and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild
1: so, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit gocoastguard.com to learn more.
2: Well, everybody, uh welcome back for this final segment. You know, For thousands of years, you know, humanity has known what a marvelous and miraculous thing it is for a human baby to be formed and born. And we've seen through this discussion today that each child is unique and precious. These are truths that are written on our hearts and that have been confirmed by science. Recent generations, however, have forgotten or ignored these lessons. And our society is being infected with anti-life ideology, being seen everywhere around the world. But in this country, in the United States of America, we are perhaps on the furthest edge because we allow these things to be done well beyond what most other countries will allow. So what does that say about what's going on in our country with the way that we think, with our ideology? As we lose respect for life, our interactions with each other become more coarse. And a lot of the strife the hatred and division that we're seeing in our society today emanates from the fact that we don't respect life from the womb to the tomb. And uh, there may be some very interesting days coming up very shortly as the Supreme Court considers the Dobbs case, uh, considers what should be done. I hope that each and every one of you will seek out those clinics in your neighborhood because they're everywhere. They need volunteers, they need donors, they need employees, they need people who can help. This is a big, big mission. And every single one of us has a sphere of influence. And we can use that to be kind, to be compassionate, to be caring, to show people that there's a different way. I mean, that's who we are. And that's what our Judeo Christian beliefs have taught us. We can never forsake that. So that's what I hope that we will all do. Look for those opportunities that we have to be a gift to those in our environment. And I encourage you to get involved, every single one of you. And uh I hope you've learned a lot from our time with Dr. Altman and Dr. Lee. Uh, We're so privileged to have them here and hope and pray for their continued success. And uh, I hope that you will subscribe to our free uh, Apple podcast or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a single episode. You can go back and look at old episodes as well. because we need all the common sense what we can get these days, because common sense is no longer common. Remember to rate and review, us, uh, and uh, tell your family and friends and neighbors. We all need to get involved. i very much like to hear from you, and uh, you can send us questions at ben.americancornerstone.org. At we'll try to incorporate them into the program But please keep them short and mention in the Subject Line podcast. And until next week, be well and treasure the cornerstones of, think about this, faith and liberty and community and life. See you next week.